I begin this morning with a picture of eternity given by Dr. Tony Evans. It's hard for us to comprehend eternity because many of us are bound by time and we think very linearly. He gives an illustration, perhaps that may help you comprehend what is eternity. He asks us to imagine that we would empty the largest body of water in the world, which is the Pacific Ocean, and then fill the entire Pacific Ocean with sand as tall as the highest mountain in the world, which is Mount Everest. That's hundreds of billions, perhaps trillions of grains of sand. Now imagine that a bird flies by once every 100 billion years and takes only one grain of sand. How long will it take for that sand pile to disappear the size of the Pacific Ocean? As high as Mount Everest. We perhaps can't even calculate that. And if you were able to come to a number, then you can consider that amount of time it takes to be equal to one second in eternity. My friends, you and I weren't created just to live on earth for 60 to 80 years, some 100. Every born, every baby born on earth is headed towards eternity to one of two places, You are either headed for eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. For the believer, you and I were meant to experience eternity of the fullness of life with the heavenly Father in heaven. For the Christian, death does not exist. Death is simply a doorway you must pass through to transfer into the realm of the eternal. So in this life that we live today... How do we live in view of eternity? How does it change our actions and the pursuits of our life? It should. And how do those actions, how do those transformed pursuits speak to an unbelieving world louder than words of our genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? This is the topic we want to study this morning as we continue our study in the book of James. If you have your Bibles this morning, would you turn with me to James chapter 5? We're going to be taking a look at verses 1 to 12. James chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. In the first six verses of James, he will point to the foolishness, the folly of living for the temporal. He will give three reasons why it is foolish to live for the temporary. And then from verses 7 to 12... James will offer four practical ways for how you and I can live in light of eternity. Let's take a look uh, as we begin our study in James chapter 5 with how he presents how living for the temporal is foolishness. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. In this stunning statement to begin chapter 5, James tells those who have lived for the temporary and have accumulated much wealth in this world for their own use, that they will soon experience miseries. Now when you read verse 1, I don't know if some of you have a feeling sometime that the Bible seems to always pick on the rich people. If you're 
rich or have been blessed with wealth, you read the scriptures and you say, the Bible's always picking on us. I want you to note that nowhere in the Bible does it condemn the rich for being rich. In fact, our material things are gifts given from above. They are from the Lord and we are to use it in accordance with how God has blessed us. We are to worship Him in return for the material blessings He gives us. So what is this cry of misery if being rich is not a sin? Well, being rich is not a sin. The pursuit of it is a sin. The love of it and the love for it is a sin. How it changes who you trust, how it changes whom you rely upon in your life is a sin. And the Bible tells us you will weep and howl for the miseries that are going to come upon you. What are these miseries? Look at verse 2 and 3. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and you will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. James tells us that those things that one has accumulated in this life are in the process of perishing and decaying. The fine clothes that were a source of your wealth are now falling apart. Material things which are represented by gold and silver are corroding, they are decaying, they are breaking down. Thus, the value of it is diminished. You see, the first reason James tells us that living for the temporary is a foolish endeavor is that all the things you work for and all the things that you want will decay. It will break down. And when you come to the realization that all that you've worked so hard to try to obtain is in the process of breaking down, you will cry out. You will cry in desperation. It is a cry of agony. As I thought about the type of crying that James is talking about, I was reminded that when I was growing up, I had a dream. I dreamed that one day I would own a Lamborghini Contosh. That is my dream car. That is still my dream car. Growing up, I had posters of the Lamborghini Contosh all over my wall in my room. Today, this car is worth more than half a million dollars. And let's say hypothetically that one day I had accumulated more than half a million U.S. dollars and I would now buy my dream car. And so I bring half a million U.S. dollars and go to the fort where there's a Lamborghini store and I would go buy a Lamborghini Contosh. And with that excitement that I've had since I was eight years old, I would get behind my car and I would drive it out the store. And let's say as I drive it out the store, as I drive it out of the store, another reckless driver comes and he crashes into me and totals my car. There will be a cry that comes out of my mouth and probably a few other bad words. And it will be a cry of agony. And this is the cry that James is talking about. The cry of many who have worked their entire lives for objects and things which they will come to the realization is in the process of deteriorating and decaying. And the Bible says in verse 3, it will serve as a witness that the pursuits of your life has been for naught. What you have lived your life for has been for nothing. 
because you have not been a good steward of, of wealth. Instead of giving it to the work of God, you have hoarded it. And the Bible tells us it is a foolish endeavor. And you and I know this to be true. Just look at our desire for new phones, new computers, new watches, new gadgets. Especially with electronic things, you realize how quickly it becomes useless and obsolete, often in less than a year. I mean, does anyone really even use DVDs anymore to store files? Things move so fast. This is the folly of living for the temporary because all that you work hard for and all that you want will one day decay. The second source for why the pursuit of the temporary is foolishness is found in verse 4. Look with me. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ear of the Lord of Sabbath. You see, the next folly of living for the temporary is that you have, perhaps, in your life, used an ethical means to achieve what you have. Perhaps, some way or somehow, you have used someone to get ahead in life and think, you know what, I've gotten away with it. I've won. The Bible says, think again. Because the Bible tells us it is foolishness to live for the temporary because injustice will be found out and dealt with. You see, James uses the example of workers in the field who somehow were not paid fairly. And they cry out, and the Lord has heard it. Just like today, back then, there were many who used, quote-unquote, creative accounting and cheated their workers from fair wage. And these people who had been taken advantage of cry out. And the Lord of the Sabbath has heard it. And when the Lord hears something, we should tremble. You see, truth be told, many of us, when we reach the pinnacle of our professions, when we are on the top of the world in our various fields, there is one thing that we will fear when we reach the top. And what we will fear is that someone with dirt on us will tell the entire world how we cheated them, how we abused them, how we were unfaithful to them, how we copied them, how we stole their ideas, and they have proof. And we will tell them, please don't embarrass me. We will plead with them. Many who live for the folly of the temporary, will do everything at all cost so that they can have what they want in this lifetime. They will climb the corporate ladder, stepping on the oppressed. They will take advantage of others. They will cheat. They will mistreat. They will stab people in the back just to get where they want to be. And perhaps you are where you are and have what you have because you have done those things. Let me tell you, my friends, the ends never justify the means. Injustice will be found out and it will be dealt with. If you're living for the temporary and you use these methods and means to try to achieve what you want, 
it will be found out. The third reason it is foolish to live a life for the temporary is found in verses 5 and 6. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury, James writes. You have fattened your heart as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and have murdered the just. He does not resist you. You see, the third foolishness of living for the temporary is that it is simply temporary. If you have enjoyed all the luxuries that this present life has to offer and have lived only for that, then you know what? That's the best you're ever going to get. The best that life has to offer is now. And for you, it doesn't get any better. You see, it is foolish to live for the temporary because it is temporary. James uses a very graphic illustration of an animal that enjoys all good foods only so that it can be fattened and then slaughtered. I was reminded of an article I read uh, a few years back. I was one day searching for what is the most expensive meat in the world. And it is the Wagyu cow that comes from Kobe, Japan. Yesterday I checked on the price. It's about 40,000 Philippine pesos for one kilogram of meat. So if you go to Japan and you tell me, Pastor, I found a great Wagyu place... I got it for only 3,000 pesos. It's not the real thing. So I remember this article I read about the Wagyu cows from Kobe, Japan. And how these cows are treated as the stuff of legend. Farmers who raise these cattle are, are said to massage the cows every day. To give them a pleasant environment by which they can graze. These farmers are known to sing every day to these cows. In fact, they serve up ice-cold beer for these revered animals to get that special marbled Wagyu fat. And as I read this article, as you read this article, you will say to yourself, I want to be a Wagyu cow. Who doesn't want every day to get a massage, to have someone sing to them, and to have ice-cold beer? That sounds like a good life. And if you say to yourself, I want to be a Wagyu cow and enjoy all the good things of life, And I will say to you, you can only enjoy it for three years because they are slaughtered when they are three years old. Only three years to enjoy the Wagyu lifestyle. And then that's it. Of course, you cannot be a Wagyu cow. But truth be told, if you are posed with a similar choice, would you like 21 years of luxurious, debaucherous living, or would you rather have 90 years of good living? What would you choose? Would you choose 20, 30 years of amazing, luxurious, party life? Or would you rather have 80 years, 90 years of just good living? Some of the younger folks in our congregation this morning would say, Bring on the party. Give me all that the world can offer me. I've never experienced those things. I just want to experience those things, even if it's 20, 30 years of my life. Those who have lived life long enough, perhaps a bit more mature, would say, you know what, no. I'll take 80, 90 years of good living. 
But take it to a higher level. Would you prefer 80 or 90 years of luxurious living or eternity with the best of everything? Would you take 80 or 90 years of great luxurious living, the biggest mansions, the most amazing cars, a private jet, never having to worry about money, the finest of foods, would you take 80 or 90 years of that, the best of health, or would you take eternity with the best of everything? We know what the right answer is. But somehow in our foolishness, we still choose the temporary pleasures of life. We rather have the pleasures that are temporary instead of the eternal. And we've always been this way. We've been this way ever since we were children. If you tell a child and give them an option, child, would you like your gift now? It'll be small. Or would you like your gift later? Perhaps at the end of the year when we can collect everything and you can get something amazing. Perhaps that proposition has been made to you. Would you like small gifts now? Or would you like something better? But you've got to wait. Research shows that most children will take the gifts now. They want it now. Then they'll get the toy now. And they'll play with it and perhaps you parents will then tell them, you know what, if you'd only waited, daddy and mommy was going to buy you this at the end of the year. And they'll play and look at their toy and say, you know what, can I change? I want that instead. And although you may say at that moment, I'm sorry, you've already made your choice. When Christmas comes rolling around because you love them, you'll still give it to them. And that's why the kids know how to manipulate you. But God doesn't work that way. As adults, we are told specifically in the scriptures what we will be getting in the future if we only wait. We know. It's not a secret. And yet we still choose the temporary gifts of this life now. And then we enjoy it. Because pleasures are enjoyable. And then we will find ourselves regretting it later when we live in eternity and we've stored no treasures in heaven. And you'll say, Lord, I'm so sorry. Any way for me to make it up? And here's the answer, no. Because my friends, how you live your life on this earth reverberates forever. That's what the Bible says. Forever. In eternity, the pleasures of heaven do not end. The wonders of heaven is not some sort of fanciful ideas that pastor make up in our human construct to get you to do spiritual things. It is the very words of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and this is what He has promised. And yet, even with the Word of God promising us these things, we still foolishly choose the temporary luxuries of life. That's why we are fools. Well, these are the realities of the temporary. How then do we live in light of eternity? James offers four practical ways. 
The first one is found in verses 7 and 8. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The first thing James charges for those who are living in light of eternity, number one, is that they are to be patient because the Lord is coming. Be patient because the Lord is coming. When the Lord comes, He brings with Him both justice and rewards. And here He uses an illustration about the farmer who has to wait for his crops to grow during the two rainy seasons. And because none of us are farmers and we live in an instant generation, it is hard for us to understand the need for patiently waiting for an intended result. You know, for many of us, waiting is something is simply something we have to do. And it is hard. We find no purpose in waiting. We think that somehow God makes us wait because He just wants to see us suffer. But there is purpose in waiting, especially in viewed for those who live in light of eternity. You see, when you are living in light of eternity, waiting for you and me is waiting for something better to come. Our waiting is not futile. It's not pointless. Our waiting in view of eternity is for something better to come. Imagine if you were a farmer. I can only imagine our instant generations becoming farmers today. We look at that soil, nothing comes out. We're planting potatoes or tomatoes or whatever. Radishes. Everything's happening underground. We're so impatient. Probably by the week's end, we're already pulling it out to see if anything's grown. Can you imagine this farmer, if after the first rain, his little tomato comes out? He can't wait for the second rain. He takes his little tomato and he says, okay, this is as good as it's going to get. Let's go sell it. He won't make much of a profit. But if he waits after the second rainy period, when the tomato... Whatever else he's farming comes to its right size. Then he could sell it at full profit. He can experience the full rewards of what happens when he has waited. So it is in the Christian life. If we cannot wait patiently, then we will never be able to experience the full rewards that God has intended for us when he comes More than that, in our patience in all areas of our life, men and women who do not know Christ are looking at our lives. They are looking at our lives to see if we really believe what we want them to believe. We tell them, please, come and know Jesus Christ so that you can have an eternal life. That better things will come into your life. And they see us all impatient. And they see that we are striving just as hard as they are for worldly success and honor and wealth and riches. You know what they're going to think? They're going to think, they're no different. They say Jesus is coming, but they don't live like He is. 
They say that Jesus will bring with him justice and rewards, but they don't live like it. Patience is a virtue, but waiting is a killer. And everyone is watching what you're going to do. The Bible says in verse 8, establish your heart. Prepare your heart. There are no ten ways to know how to wait. You either wait or you don't. There are methods to cope while you're waiting, keeping yourself busy, so on and so forth. But there is no secret to waiting. It is with the establishment of your heart, the preparation of your heart, that says there are better things to come. I can wait for those things. You see the world? The world is doing everything in overdrive. They're working overtime. They're working overboard. They are stressed because they're all fighting to get to the very top with the life that they have. They know that life is short. That's why we have midlife crises for those who are in their 40s and 50s. I'm not 20 anymore. My life is soon going to end. I haven't accomplished anything. I'm going to work harder so that I can get what I want before I pass And Christians are no different. I'm not saying you can't be driven. I'm not saying you can't have dreams or goals. But you know, Christians should be some of the most relaxed people in the entire world. Do you know that? Christians should be the most chill people in the entire world. Because if they can accomplish that which God has not allowed in their life, then they just sit back and say, it's okay. It's not a fatalistic idea. It's living with the truth in light of eternity that I will be patient because Jesus Christ is coming back and he brings both justice and reward. So if you want to fight for corporate prestige, you go right ahead. And if you want to step all over people, you go right ahead. I can't play that game with you. I'm not going to have sleepless nights. I'm going to enjoy myself. Working hard, working faithfully, of course, but knowing that it's in God's hands. If I don't see those rewards in this lifetime, I'll see it in the next, and that's forever. That's for forever. And when the world sees that sort of faithful working, and yet patiently waiting for the result, it's unique to them, and they will ask you why. But Christians... Don't live like that, and so no one asks us about the Christ we proclaim to live for. The second practical way that James proposes how we are to live in light of eternity can be found in verse 9. Look with me. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Another practical way that James proposes how we are to live in light of the eternity is that we are not to judge, number two, because the true judge will come. We do not judge because the true judge is coming. We previously talked about two weeks ago how we cannot know the hearts and motivations of other people and therefore we are in no place to judge others. But we don't need to worry because judgment is coming soon when the Bible tells us the true judge enacts his verdict. And here James in verse 9 pictures the Lord as a judge who is standing at the door. He is very near. And therefore to live in light of eternity, 
is to leave the many things that I have in the hands of God and I don't have to fight for it. It doesn't mean allow others to step all over us, but it means that I can have the peace of mind of knowing that God will see to it that everything is properly adjudicated. How many of of us have sleepless nights because we are bitter and angry and we worry about how others have wronged us? We have sleepless nights because others don't get their just punishments or we're up at nights worrying about how we can get back at other people for what they did to us. This is what keeps people up at nights. They don't have peace in their heart Because all they can think about is revenge. I'll prove them wrong. And we want all to be the executor of God's judgment in this time and in this world. What I'm trying to tell you, my friends, this morning is this. That living in light of eternity is to leave it in the hands of the judge. Capital J, verse 9. Who sees all things and takes notes. God won't forget, and his judicial execution is always perfect. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to see your enemy vaporized with a lightning bolt from heaven, even though you probably wish it so. But it means you can be at peace. You can even pity your enemies. You know that? You can even love them. You can even feel sorry for them. Because of what wrongs they've done to you, you feel pity because they will be judged by the one who doesn't let anything slide. And you pity them, you feel sorry for them, because their self-worth is in winning over you, but your self-worth is found in handing them over to someone else to deal with. In that case, you are the better person. How do we love our enemies? How do we pity them? How do we feel sorry for them? How do we look upon them with love when we understand that the true judge will come? And we place them in God's hands. That is how we live in light of eternity. The third area for how James suggests we can live in light of eternity is found in verses 10 and 11. Look with me. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Here in the third way that James proposes how we can live in light of eternity, number three, is to persevere and endure to the end for a reward. To persevere and endure to the end for a reward. Persevering endurance. James gives examples. The first one of the many prophets who spoke on behalf of the Lord. Many of them in the Old Testament. Only to be mocked and ridiculed by their contemporaries. In fact, the very people who they were called to minister to never responded to the message of the Lord in their lifetime. And they wanted to kill them. People like Elijah and Elisha and Samuel and Nathan, prophets of old. But they persevered 
And they suffered with patient endurance until their last breath. They were living in light of eternity. James gives another example of the person of Job. If you want a person that exemplifies endurance, look at Job. Here is a God-fearing, righteous man. And his story is told in one of the longest books in the Bible, 42 chapters in the book of Job. And in those 42 chapters, most of it is pretty depressing. It is the story of a man who had everything and how he lost everything. But he never lost sight of enduring until the end. He lost his family. He lost all of his wealth. He contracted terrible diseases. And yet he continued to persevere in the Lord. He had the worst of friends, I think. These knuckle-headed friends who said, Job, just give up. Curse God and die. It is not worth it to live like this. Do not persevere. Do not press on. These were the friends that he had. And yet, he persevered. And at the end of this long book, in a few verses in chapter 42, we read that his perseverance led to a reward. The Lord blessed him with double of everything he lost. And that's why James can truthfully write at the end of verse 11, The Lord is indeed merciful and compassionate. The point is that, my friends, if you live a life of persevering endurance for the sake of the Lord in light of eternity, even to endure suffering and shame, God is going to make it up to you in ways you cannot imagine. This is something our generation needs to understand. We all go through struggles and ridicule to be a testimony to the world of our Savior. But do not worry. God will make it up. Keep the faith. But many of us do not understand this truth. And therefore we are not committed. Oh, we talk about commitment all the time. Commitment is a buzzword of the generation today. Are you committed? Absolutely. Do you love Jesus? Absolutely. But we are committed only until we have to suffer. And then we aren't so committed as well. So if I were to ask you this morning, how many of you love Jesus with all of your heart? I think the vast majority of you would raise your hand. How many of you would be fully committed to Jesus with your life? Most all of you would raise your hand. How many of you are willing to suffer for Jesus? All of you would raise your hand. How many of you are willing to take the shuttle? You see how I work that in? Yeah, not many of you are going to be raising your hands. You see, the problem is that commitment runs into the roadblock of our convenience. And then you have people of other religions who believe in a false god. And they will crawl on hands and knees to a shrine, hands bloodied, knees bloodied, and it doesn't matter to them. And for the Christian today, To have our schedules inconvenienced a little bit. To have a little drop of rain fall on our heads. To suffer a little bit for Jesus. Oh, how can it be 
that I would experience such tribulation. This generation, more than any, needs to understand what persevering endurance looks like. It's not easy. But if more people will evidence will evidence endurance in their life, patient endurance, the world will take notice of Christians. Right now they laugh at us. They look at our faith and they say, "Really? You're committed? I see your life. Seems like every other thing takes priority over the worship of God. Every other thing seems to take priority over time with God. And if you can't be committed to your God, you have no right to tell me to believe in what you believe. One of the heroes I look up to, a man of faith, uh, is the great Methodist preacher John Wesley. In an excerpt from his diary, he writes these words. May 5, a Sunday morning, preached in St. Anne's Church, was asked not to come back anymore. May 5, Sunday afternoon, preached in St. John's Church, deacons told me, get out and stay out. The next week, May 12, Sunday morning, preached in St. Jude's Church, can't go back there either. The next week, May 19, Sunday morning, preached in another church. Deacons called a special meeting and said I couldn't return. That afternoon, May 19, preached on the street. God kicked off the streets. The next week, May 26, Sunday morning, preached in a meadow, in a field. Chased out of that field as the farmer turned loose his bull to drive me out. A few weeks later, June 2, Sunday morning, preached out at the edge of town, kicked off the highway. June 2, Sunday afternoon, preached in a pasture far away. 10,000 people came to hear me preach about Christ. Hundreds came to know Him. Oh, my friends, if only we would press on and persevere with patient endurance to show the world that we really believe in a God who has promised to reward us at the end. If you and I give up, as we often do, we are not living in light of eternity. When we give up, it shows the world that the God we worship is not worth pursuing. Did you hear that? If Christians are not committed and they are not faithful, it's not only on them. It shows the world that the Christ you claim to worship and love with all of your hearts, it's not worth believing. Press on. Because if you press on and persevere, it will speak louder than words to an unbelieving world. Verse 12. 
But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. In this fourth practical advice that James gives us for how we are to live in light of eternity, number four, is to speak the truth so we don't get into trouble. Speak the truth so we don't get into trouble. You see, in view of eternity, we don't need to swear. A swear is a form of an oath. Believe me, believe me. And so you swear something. The trustworthiness of our words should be good enough. Because when we speak, it speaks of our intentions. And if it reveals the true intentions of our hearts, then we do it. Or else the Bible says we will be judged. If you say you're going to do something, then do it. If you can't do something, then don't say anything. You can't. You see, believers who live in light of eternity do not need to nuance the words. Believers who live for eternity don't need to nuance their words. They just need to tell it like it is. Because all that we say and all that we promise will be held to account. You know, many of us, especially Christians, don't think that anyone will keep us accountable for what we will say. The Bible says in verse 12, there is someone. And so, because we don't believe anyone will keep us accountable, we tell people, we'll pray for you. We'll pray for you. That is our default answer when someone tells us the hardships of their life. Pastor, I've got a problem. I'll pray for you. Friend, I've got a problem. I'll pray for you. I can't tell you all the social media postings I see. When someone presents their problems, 300 people praying, 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 praying. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Isn't it great? All these people praying for that someone. But don't have to raise your hand because I know you'll be guilty just like I am. How many of you actually pray for all the people you say you'll be praying for? Because I bet you if you prayed for all the people you promised to pray for, you would have an amazing prayer life. You'd pray for two hours and still not be done because of all the people you promised to pray for. But most of us, we pray five minutes and we say, Lord, I have nothing to pray for. Well, how about all the people you promised that you're going to pray for? So if you're not going to pray for them, don't tell them anything. I'll be thinking about you. It's a good answer. You say, Pastor, why are you making such a big deal out of it? Because that's what the Bible says. What comes out of your mouth and what you promise is something that you're going to be held accountable for. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into judgment. Because your words reflect how you live your life. And it has eternity at stake. Living for eternity changes the way you speak and how you respond and help others. Because we will all be held accountable on that day. Have you heard of the phrase, my word is my bond? The words of every Christian should be their bond. If it comes out of their mouth, it should be as good as a contract. My word is my bond. But somehow we're no better than the unchristian, the non-believers. We're no better than the world. Sometimes their word is their bond, our word is not. 
And we'll just say, Lord, forgive me. But if you tell someone, for example, that if you lend me money, I'll pay you back. If I borrow money, I promise to pay you back. You better pay them back, even if you haven't signed anything black and white. Because I've had people come up to me and say, Pastor, would you adjudicate between two church members who have borrowed money from each other and they trusted each other and they didn't write anything in black and white? Your word should be your bond. Whether it's written or not, it doesn't matter because in the eyes of God, if you're living in light of eternity, then what you have said, you will be held accountable to. God is a gracious God. He is a merciful God. He forgives sin. But I want you to forget, I want you not to forget, my friends, that God holds our life into account. There is a judgment for Christians. The book of 2 Corinthians tells us it is called the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, that is reserved for Christians. It will be a judgment for our rewards for how we have lived this life as believers. So if you say you're going to do something for someone, then you better do it because your word better be your bond and it reflects Jesus Christ to the world. Too often we are loose with the tongue. In our fake spirituality, we say things we never intend to keep. But if you're going to live your life in view of eternity... Let your yes be yes and your no be no. That your word is as good as a bond. I never said that living in light of eternity is easy. But living your life in eternity with eternity in view is worth it. It is because men and women like you and me who do not live in view of eternity is why we do not make an impact in this world. Like what C.S. Lewis once said, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Did you get that? It is because Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that we become so ineffective in this one. It's because we do not think about heaven. It is because we do not think about eternity. It is because we do not think about living in light of eternity that we are so ineffective as followers of Jesus Christ in this life. If you want your life to speak louder than words of the faith that you have, then you and I need to live in view of eternity. Because we are proclaiming to the world that if you believe in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you will have what type of life? An eternal life. An eternal life. Now, it must be a wonderment to the world that you are proclaiming that to believe in Jesus Christ, you will get the wonders of eternal life when the Christian themselves are not living for that eternal glory. It is absolute hypocrisy. The world needs to see that you and I are living for the eternal so that we have the basis to tell our relatives and to tell our friends and to tell our colleagues that you too need to accept Christ 
who died in your place so that you can have an eternal life. Because if you're living your life just like them, what is the point? You and I, like the rest of the world, are only living for the temporary. May our God give us the grace, the fortitude, and the desire to examine our lives so that we can live it in view of eternity. And by doing so, come into the rewards that He has promised us, of which we will never say it wasn't worth it. And so that we can also make, through our transformed life, a major impact in this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for your word, thank you. It is a good reminder even to me because we all fall into the trap of living for the temporary. Father, I pray this morning that the living word of God would challenge the hearts of these men and women so we do not look around at other people, but we look at our own hearts and we say, I want to begin that change. I want to live my life with a heavenly mindset. I want to live my life in view of eternity. Heavenly Father, I pray that this church, not having to compare ourselves with others, but this church will be a church where its people have their sights heavenward that they are willing to make the sacrifice, the endurance, to wait patiently to influence our community, to see that when we offer the gospel of Jesus Christ and the eternal life that He brings, will be in lockstep with how we live our life for the eternal. May each of our lives speak louder than words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.